Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2011 issue. Let's get started. Acute agitation associated with psychiatric disease often results in severe distress to patients and their caregivers and is one of the most significant factors responsible for the ongoing stigmatization of mental illness. Acute agitation generally requires prompt intervention to mitigate its harmful effects. Although current oral and intramuscular medications have demonstrated efficacy for this problem, they have a slow absorption rate. The onset of action can take from 30 to 60 minutes. A device that delivers a thermally generated aerosol of loxapine for inhalation is currently under development to fulfill this unmet need for rapid-acting, non-invasive treatment of agitation. A group of authors featured in our October issue conducted a study funded by Alexa Pharmaceuticals using this new device to test the efficacy and safety of inhaled loxapine in the treatment of agitation in patients with psychotic disorders. Inhaled loxapine was generally safe and well-tolerated and produced rapid improvement. Statistically significant differences in efficacy were found for the 10 milligram dose versus placebo, and the results suggested that a 5 milligram dose may be effective. The delivery of loxapine by inhalation may provide a rapid, well-tolerated option for treating acute psychotic agitation and warrants further investigation. The recently published COMED trial, a study of 665 outpatients with major depressive disorder, reported that monotherapy with escitalopram was just as effective as combination therapy using escitalopram plus bupropion or venlafaxine plus mirtazapine. This secondary analysis of COMED data supported by the National Institute of Mental Health looked at the differences between patients with and without suicidal ideation. Participants with baseline ideation were as likely as those without it to tolerate the medications and have a positive outcome. Escitalopram plus bupropion was significantly more likely to reduce suicidal ideation as compared to the other treatments. Emergence of suicidal ideation during treatment was uncommon, with no differences between the treatment groups. There were no completed suicides during the study, and only four attempts. All four of these patients were taking venlafaxine plus mirtazapine, a finding that deserves further investigation. Suicide events were more likely to occur during continuation treatment than during acute treatment, in contrast to the idea that suicide risk is greatest right after initiation of treatment. These findings argue for an overall protective effect of antidepressants that alleviates depressive symptoms and reduces suicidal thoughts. Ready or not, DSM-5 is coming. Concerns about changes have been raised and conceptual critiques have been written. Nonetheless, 
Field trials are underway, and DSM-5 is scheduled for arrival in 2013. Over the years, one of the major problems with classifying personality disorders has been the fuzzy boundary between normality and abnormality. The threshold for distinguishing patients with and without personality disorder is arbitrary. Since DSM-3 was released, the question has not been whether a dimensional system will replace the categorical approach to personality disorders, but when it will happen. The draft criteria for DSM-5 recommend multiple and controversial changes to the way personality disorders are diagnosed, and one of them is to replace the categories with dimensional ratings. However, DSM-4 already essentially includes a three-point dimensional convention for rating personality disorders as absent, as having sub-threshold traits, or as present. Mark Zimmerman and his colleagues report on a study from the Rhode Island Methods to Improve Diagnostic Assessment and Services, or MIDAS project, in which over 2,000 outpatients were interviewed using semi-structured diagnostic interviews for DSM-4 Axis 1 and Axis 2 disorders. Patients were also rated on seven measures of psychosocial morbidity. They then examined the relationship between four different dimensional scoring formats for the 10 DSM-4 personality disorders. The three-point convention used in DSM-4 was more strongly associated with measures of psychosocial morbidity than was categorical diagnosis. No advantage was found for more finely graded levels of severity beyond just a simple three-point scale. The authors conclude that DSM-4 already includes a valid dimensional approach when significant sub-threshold traits of a personality disorder are noted. A more radical dimensional model proposed by DSM-5 may not be needed. The Zimmerman article is accompanied by commentaries from Joel Paris and Michael First, who contribute their own well-informed perspectives on this issue. The next article by Dr. Andrew Leon has implications for the design of clinical trials that are used to test psychiatric medications. Motivated primarily by the efforts for health care reform in the United States, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has solicited requests for applications to conduct comparative effectiveness research. One federal agency defines comparative effectiveness research as, quote, research comparing the benefits and harms of different interventions and strategies to treat and monitor health conditions in real-world settings, unquote. Under this definition, randomized trials would need to include comparator arms other than placebo and to be representative of populations seen in real-world practice. This definition is expected to move the research agenda away from a predominant focus on efficacy trials to include more effectiveness trials for evaluation of therapeutics.
Efficacy trials evaluate a treatment effect in a rarefied sample under ideal circumstances, while effectiveness trials evaluate the treatment effect in real-world settings among a broader range of participants. In this article, Dr. Leon considers the implications of including an active comparator for clinical trial design. He also contrasts aspects of the superiority trial design with those of the non-inferiority design. Listeners are urged to read this important article, the contents of which do not lend themselves to a brief synopsis, and to consult the accompanying commentary by Dr. Helena Kramer. Next, Zanarini and colleagues present the largest randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled pharmacotherapy trial for borderline personality disorder conducted to date, and the first to examine the efficacy and safety of low and moderate doses of olanzapine compared to placebo for this disorder. It is also one of the first studies to use a psychometrically proven outcome measure designed specifically to assess severity of overall borderline psychopathology over time. Some 450 adult outpatients with dsm four borderline personality disorder received olanzapine 2.5 milligrams a day or olanzapine 5 to 10 milligrams a day or placebo. The primary efficacy measure was mean change from baseline to endpoint on the Zanarini rating scale for borderline personality disorder with a number of other secondary measures. Only treatment with olanzapine 5 to 10 milligrams a day was associated with significantly greater change from baseline to endpoint relative to placebo. Response rates were also significantly higher for patients taking the higher dose versus the lower dose or placebo. Furthermore, time to response was shorter for patients taking the higher dose versus placebo. Treatment emergent adverse events more frequently reported among the olanzapine-treated patients included somnolence, fatigue, increased appetite, and weight gain. Mean weight change from baseline to endpoint was significantly greater for the olanzapine groups than the placebo group. Study results suggest that olanzapine, 5 to 10 milligrams a day, may be modestly effective for treatment of overall borderline psychopathology and that the types of adverse events observed in the olanzapine groups, particularly weight gain, appeared similar to effects seen in other diagnostic groups treated with olanzapine. Dr. George Nurnberg has provided a valuable commentary on this article. He examines in detail this fixed-dose trial in relation to a previously published flexible-dose trial by the same group. Both trials were sponsored by Eli Lilly and were conducted concurrently using essentially the same protocols and outcome measures. In Dr. Nuremberg's words, quote, it would have been more parsimonious to have results of these two important trials presented together in the same journal instead of two plus years apart 
in different journals. Close quote. Past research has demonstrated that a substantial portion of children with ADHD show a positive response to placebos, but little work has examined the factors that predict this occurrence. Likewise, no published studies have examined response to placebos in adults with ADHD. To address these deficiencies, the authors of this article designed a study funded by Shire Pharmaceuticals, to analyze data from two well-controlled studies that examine the effects of various doses of lisdexamphetamine dimesylate as compared to placebo for the treatment of ADHD. The authors found that symptom remission was inversely correlated with baseline severity in both children and adults, with less robust effects seen for response. Time to response and remission was delayed in adults receiving placebo versus drug. In children, time to response was also significantly slower with placebo versus drug. Certain premorbid medical symptoms reduced the response and remission rates for placebo treatment in children and adults. In both children and adults, baseline symptom severity was the most consistent predictor of remission with placebo, while the temporal profile of response reliably differentiated placebo responders from medication responders. The impact of medical and psychiatric comorbidities on placebo response merits further investigation. In 2005, vagus nerve stimulation, sometimes called VNS, was approved by the FDA for non-psychotic unipolar or bipolar depressive episodes that have not responded to at least four antidepressant trials. A group from the University of Pennsylvania conducted a study of this modality in 15 patients with treatment-resistant depression and compared their results to those of the efficacy trial that led to the FDA approval. Ten of the patients had MDD and five had bipolar disorder. The primary outcome was change from baseline in the Beck depression inventory after six months and 12 months. Scores decreased significantly and were about 13 points lower on the Beck inventory after one year. By the end of one year, almost 29% of the sample had responded to vagus nerve stimulation and 7% had remitted. Side effects included hoarseness, shortness of breath, nausea, pain, and anxiety. The outcomes were similar to previous VNS efficacy studies and showed a similar side effect profile. The authors concluded that a substantial minority of patients with extremely difficult-to-treat depression may benefit from VNS in clinical practice. For more than two decades, psychiatrists using neuroimaging have aspired to provide a form of laboratory study that would be required for a psychiatric diagnosis to be valid. That is, researchers have sought neural signatures of psychiatric disorders. Questioning the feasibility of this endeavor, the authors of our next article examined whether current psychiatric nosology as defined in the DSM lends itself to identification of neural signatures for psychiatric diagnoses. 
existing neuroimaging research in psychiatry has identified patterns of neural structure and activation that differentiate groups of affected individuals from groups of healthy controls. But to date, this line of research has failed to identify neural signatures that distinguish between individuals with and without a given disorder, much less between individuals with different disorders. It is unlikely that it will be possible to use neuroimaging technology to determine which psychiatric diagnosis an individual warrants. The heterogeneity of psychiatric disorder categories, as defined in the DSM, reveals that these diagnoses do not reflect neurologically discrete phenomena. Furthermore, neural correlates of psychopathology generally are not unique to specific diagnoses. It appears that currently available behavioral methods of diagnosing mental disorders are still more accurate and substantially less expensive than neuroimaging approaches. Although it is unrealistic to hope that neuroimaging will be used to make psychiatric diagnoses as they are currently conceived, neuroimaging is already being used to make headway in other areas of psychiatric investigation. The authors note that for a very limited subset of DSM categories in which the disorder is defined by structural changes in the brain, for example, dementia due to brain tumor, as well as for neurologic disorders with known neural effects, for example, Alzheimer's disease, diagnosis based on brain imaging is a more realistic prospect. Religious and or spiritual beliefs and coping have been reported to be of importance to patients with bipolar disorder. These patients are prone to suicidal behavior, yet possible protective mechanisms are rarely studied. The authors of the next study, which was funded by the National Institutes of Health and the Nina Ron Fund, investigated the possible role of moral and religious objection to suicide as a protection against suicidal ideation and behavior in depressed bipolar patients. A retrospective case-controlled study was conducted of 149 depressed bipolar patients from a tertiary care university research clinic. Patients who reported religious affiliation were compared with patients without religious affiliation in terms of sociodemographic and clinical characteristics and a history of suicidal behavior. The authors found that bipolar patients with religious affiliation had fewer past suicide attempts than patients without religious affiliation. Furthermore, they found moral or religious objection to suicide to be correlated with several demographic variables, such as having more children and having a family-related social network. Moral or religious objection to suicide was also associated with clinical variables, such as less suicidal ideation, less impulsivity, fewer cluster B personality disorders, and less comorbid alcohol and substance misuse. These variables are well-known risk factors or protective factors for suicidal behavior. The authors assert that these associations warrant further investigations. 
Blockade of dopamine D2 receptors is thought to mediate the therapeutic effects of antipsychotic medication, but it also may induce social indifference. As antipsychotic drugs differ in D2 receptor binding, tight binding and loose binding drugs may be hypothesized to differentially affect emotional experience. The authors of this study investigated the differential effects of relatively tight binding versus looser binding drugs on emotional experience in the realm of daily life. The investigators used a structured diary technique to assess positive and negative affect in the daily life of 109 patients who were currently taking antipsychotic medication. The medications were classified as loose or tight binding on the basis of each drug's dissociation constants at the D2 receptor. Analyses showed a significant interaction between binding group and D2 receptor occupancy estimates with regard to the experience of positive and negative affect. For users of tight binding agents, a significant association was found between D2 receptor binding estimates and both positive and negative affect in the flow of daily life. For users of loose binding agents, no such association was apparent. These associations were only partially mediated by clinical symptoms. These findings add ecological validity to previous laboratory findings showing an association between D2 receptor occupancy and emotional experience. Previous reports have suggested that lamotrigine is effective as an antidepressant augmentation agent in patients with treatment-resistant unipolar depression. Our next article reports the result of the first large multi-centered, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial to evaluate the safety and efficacy of lamotrigine when added to an antidepressant, in this case paroxetine, in a group of patients with treatment-resistant unipolar non-psychotic major depressive disorder. The study was funded by GlaxoSmithKline. 183 patients aged 18 to 65 years, who had a DSM-4, or ICD-10 diagnosis of non-psychotic MDD, and who had failed at least one adequate trial of an antidepressant, were treated first for eight weeks with open-label paroxetine. Those who still had a Hamilton depression score of 15 or higher were then randomized to either placebo or lamotrigine for 10 weeks. 65 patients completed the study. The primary outcome measure was the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale. Results of the primary efficacy analysis of the randomized patients did not demonstrate a statistically significant difference between the lamotrigine and placebo groups, although some secondary analyses were suggestive of efficacy, particularly in those patients who completed the study and in the more severely ill patients. In future studies with lamotrigine or other prospective augmentation agents, alternative clinical trial design strategies should be considered. In addition, alternative staging strategies, such as the Massachusetts General Hospital staging method, may be more useful than the face-rush criteria in an era when the use of tricyclics and monoamine oxidase inhibitors seems to be 
steadily dwindling. Given the unmet needs of the patient population, one can only hope that further investigation with lamotrigine and other potential augmentation agents will continue. Our next article presents new data on adjunctive zeprazidone for acute treatment of depression in patients with bipolar 1 disorder. This disorder is a common, complex, chronic illness that is associated with considerable functional impairment. This dynamic disorder challenges researchers as well as clinicians, and as a consequence, relatively few high-quality data are available to guide clinical practice. The management of depression in patients with this disorder remains an area of significant unmet need. The investigators have addressed this need by conducting a study designed to examine the efficacy and safety of ciprazidone as add-on therapy in patients with bipolar 1 disorder who were being treated with lithium, valproate, or lamotrigine. Nearly 300 patients were randomized to receive ciprazidone or placebo twice per day along with their pre-existing mood stabilizer for six weeks. Assessments of depression severity were made at baseline and weekly thereafter. The results showed that although zeprazidone was well tolerated, no statistically significant difference between adjunctive zeprazidone and placebo was observed on the primary outcome measure. The authors suggest that possible contributions to this result include enrollment of a substantial number of subjects with low diagnostic confidence, low quality ratings on the primary outcome measure, and overzealous reporting of symptoms by the subjects. They advise that when designing future studies, researchers should put greater emphasis on assessing protocol-specified eligibility, assuring high diagnostic confidence, and achieving high-quality ratings. Suicide is a prevalent public health problem with almost a million people dying each year worldwide. Research has suggested a relationship between allergy, allergens, and suicidal behavior with a possible immune mediation. The authors of a study supported by the National Institute of Mental Health hypothesize that intranasal corticosteroids, which reduce inflammation in the nose, and non-sedating antihistamines, which reduce allergy symptoms, would have different associations with suicide rates. They looked at the relationship of suicide rates at the county level in the United States and prescriptions for intranasal corticosteroids and non-sedating antihistamines from 1999 to 2002. A higher number of prescriptions for intranasal corticosteroids was associated with a lower suicide risk while a higher number of prescriptions for antihistamines was associated with a somewhat greater suicide risk. This is the first study to find a possible association between completed suicide and medications for allergic rhinitis. It is also the first report of any medication for non-psychiatric conditions being associated with a lower suicide risk. The findings are consistent with a growing body of literature on neuroimmune associations with risk of suicide and suicidal behavior, but they need to be replicated before their clinical impact can be determined. The Systematic Treatment Enhancement Program for Bipolar Disorder, or STEP-BD, 
was a multi-site nationwide clinical research program that studied the course and outcome of bipolar disorder as well as the effectiveness of available treatments. In our October ASCP corner, Amy Peters and Andrew Nirenberg of Harvard give us a broad overview of the main findings of that study. They summarize five main findings, including evidence supporting intensive psychosocial treatment and possibly lamotrigine. Importantly, both randomized and naturalistic results from STEP-BD showed that adding antidepressants to mood stabilizers for bipolar depressive episodes provided no advantage over adding placebo. This month we have another important CME commentary that presents highlights of an international consensus group meeting on depression prevention in bipolar disorder. On February 28, 2011, Dr. Mark Fry assembled an international group of experts in psychiatry to review the evidence base for depression prevention treatment in bipolar disorder, discuss standards of care, and outline a universal treatment algorithm for the prevention and maintenance care of bipolar depression. There is a free online CME activity for this commentary. There are also interactive activities this month from our CME Institute, as well as an engaging and informative collection of book reviews. Join us online for all these and much, much more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.